Welcome, everyone, to episode 61 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we are going to be uncovering the mysteries of Gemini as we dissect Ang Lee's and Will Smith's latest work, Gemini Man. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Scott. Um, you know, last time talked about how I was uh, back home at Tennessee. Well, I just got back. Um Today, after watching a triumphant Vols victory yesterday, it was very exciting. Um, but I am back now, back to uh, real life. Been pretty busy um, this weekend um, with mock trial stuff. So get ready for the uh, the mock trial updates to start coming fast and furious in this section of the podcast again, uh, because we have our first. We have two competition weekends coming up back to back. So get excited for uh, for those updates. Yeah. So when exactly is it like next weekend or no, it's the weekend is the weekend after. Yeah. This coming weekend, like, you know, the, this coming weekend for whenever you're listening to this um, and then <laughs> yeah. the weekend after that. Uh, so the next two weekends um, cool. we will be competing. Yeah. Now I'm excited, a little bit anxious to see uh, how we perform, but um, yeah. no, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic that we're gonna, we're gonna have a great season just like we did last year. Is it better or worse to not be competing? It's it has its perks and its um, downfalls like for positives, like I don't have to like actually know the case super well um, <laughs> for the downfalls. Um, I like there are many times when I'm just sitting in the back of the courtroom going nuts because my team has done something or the other team has done something. And I just want to like yell and scream, but I can't do anything. I'm totally powerless. I'm like Jimmy Stewart in rear window. Um on the back row of the courtroom. So that that's the hard part for sure. But um, no, I, I really enjoy it. Um, it was the natural next step in my uh, mock trial career, I guess. Yeah. And you also showed your mock trial team a, a movie recently, right? You got them to, you convinced them to watch a movie or no? No, unfortunately I wasn't, happened. I wasn't able to convince them. They all wanted to watch, of course they wanted to watch Legally Blonde instead, these um, oh, silly millennials. Um, and- They need to be better boomers. Yeah, there, there just wasn't a good time to do it because they have a lot going on for schoolwork. It's already a lot to ask them to come to mock trial practice for three hours on a Sunday. So um, it would it would have been a little bit more to ask them to prolong that for a 90s movie with Tom Cruise that apparently none of them have really heard of, which is very sad. But um, looks like I have more things to teach them about than just mock trial. It's okay. I'm over here doing the Lord's work, showing Booksmart to another new person. And there you go. That is good. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. Yep. And it's still well-reviewed, Scott. That's because it's a banger. It is a banger. Can't all right. Well, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think it's probably time to get down to business. As I've already mentioned, this week, we're talking about Gemini Man, helmed by the visionary, sometimes experimental director, Ang Lee, and led by Will Smith in a dual role as both Henry Brogan, a retiring government assassin, widely regarded as one of, if not the best at his job in the Defense Intelligence Agency, as well as Junior, a clone of Henry who is sent to kill Henry by Junior's father, so to speak, Clay Varys, played by Clive Owen, 
after Henry gets wind that something was amiss with his final assignment. With Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Danny and Benedict Wong's Baron along for the ride, Gemini Man is a journey to understand why the agency Henry has worked for his whole life has turned against him, and also, simply put, why Junior looks so much like him. Scott, did the technical aspects of Gemini Man combined with its performances and its story wow you, or did you leave feeling as if you had been AMF'd? You know, Scott, this is another one of the movies that continues one of the trends, I think, in 2019 movies. Um, at least I'm calling it a trend in 2019 movies and not just a trend in maybe I actually just like bad movies. Um, but there have been several films this year um, which have been not very critically well received um, that I have actually enjoyed quite um you know, a fair amount. Not, I mean, not, not saying that they're classics or anything, but I thought Alita Battle Angel, Glass, a couple or a couple that we talked about on the podcast, The Goldfinch recently, uh, The Dead Don't Die, a, a couple others that I'm forgetting um, are movies that were, you know, rotten on critic scores, on Metacritic, whatever. Uh, Dark Phoenix is another example of a movie that we thought was pretty decent, uh, despite being panned by a lot of people. Um, but I have found the virtues in it. And like I said, I don't know if that's something about the movies or if it's something about myself as the viewer. But I will say that if you look at the audience scores and the cinema scores for these movies, they do seem to be at odds with the critic scores. I, I was just looking, for example, at the fact that Gemini Man has a 26% on Rotten Tomatoes um, and an 84 critic score, B plus cinema score. So you can see a clear disparity there. So I do feel a little bit better about that. Maybe I, I guess I'm just a man of the people is what I'm saying. I'm like William Jennings Bryant. But um, I will say that I'll, I'll go to bat for Alita. It's fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It's not rotten. Oh, OK, fair. Uh, but it's like 60 or 61%, right? Yeah, 61 Okay. Well, there's still a disparity, but um, yeah, there is. Yeah, absolutely. But Scott, honestly, of all of these movies that I just named, uh, I think my favorite might be this movie that we're talking about today, Gemini Man. I pretty much thoroughly enjoyed this movie from beginning to end. Uh, I was excited for this movie going into it. You know, I, I joked about how this is probably the trailer that I've seen literally the most um, of any movie trailer this year, just before movies. I always get there to watch the trailers. And I see this one every single movie to the point where I could freaking quote the whole trailer. And so that was getting me excited. Then the reviews were kind of like cautioning me a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm happy to say that I did really enjoy this movie. I think it is a innovative action movie from, from a technical standpoint, as you brought up. It's, it's very innovative. Um, we'll talk about the, the frame rate that Ang Lee used and maybe how that accents or um, harms some of the action scenes. But in general, really clean action sequences, really easy to focus on and tell what's going on in the action sequences. Um, I saw it in IMAX as well. So maybe that also amplified my viewing experience, but wait, did, um, did you see it in at 60 frames per second? I thought you just saw it in the normal 24. I honestly don't know, but I watched it in IMAX. So yeah. So you didn't see it in a high frame, right? Oh, I didn't. Okay. Well, he has done that. You saw it in the high frame, right? I did. Yeah. I okay, saw it. So you'll talk about that, but yeah. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I couldn't, it, I mean, I, I would have been able to tell the difference, I guess. But um, anyway, I saw it in IMAX. It looks great in IMAX. Um, the action scenes, like I said, really clean, really well shot. Um, and there is there is one action sequence in this movie that is right up there with the John Wick knife fight scene as best action sequence of the year, in my opinion. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about what that is. But um, I think the performances are great. Um, across the board, um, Will Smith is is fantastic. He continues the Will Smith, the Smithissance, um, in 2019, we loved his performance in Aladdin, and I think this is an equally strong performance here. Um, and he's well cast, I think, as this guy who is really feeling 
age starting to take a toll on him and the um, the way that he's able to perform his job and the success that he's able to have in his job, um, especially, you know, when he's confronted with literally his younger self, um, makes me think a little bit about, you know, a little give give me a little once upon a time in Hollywood vibes. Right. And the way that uh, that movie played into the uh, way that age was affecting the lives of its characters, particularly Cliff and Rick. Um and so they, you know, gave me some vibes in that area. Also got a little, uh, again, the, the, not as good as these movies, but somewhat in terms of the themes, Ad Astra vibes in the way that um, we have sort of this father-son relationship and this conversation about detachment of emotion versus actually feeling something, um, which I think is present in both of those movies. Again, maybe I'm, maybe that's pretty far-fetched. Um, and I don't think this movie is anywhere on the, as much as I enjoyed it, is anywhere on the level of Ad Astra or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I think thematically there are some similarities there. Anyway, I really enjoyed the performances of the cast. Like I said, Will Smith is great. Um, Benedict Wong uh, adds some great comic relief. Clive Owen is always a solid villain. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that he could play the hero in many movies, but um, he's he's a great actor to cast if you want a smarmy villain. He does a good job. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I'm a fan of hers. I don't think her character has a ton to do here, but I think she makes the most of it. So uh, the thing that many people have complained about with this movie is the script. And I have to say that I don't know that I get it. Uh, I don't know that I fully get, I mean, people are really going in on the script in this movie, like calling it absolute garbage, one of the worst blockbuster scripts that they have seen in years. I don't understand that at all. Uh, I think that's that's a gross overreaction. Definitely there are some clunky and awkward moments in the script, but I think that the, first of all, the performances are able to elevate some of the more tin-eared lines of dialogue. And second of all, I think that the ideas and the themes that the script are exploring are, you know, maybe more interesting than some of the lines and are, are able to transcend sort of the, uh, thudding uh, on the noseness or uh, lack of eloquence in the script. And so it didn't bother me. I mean, there were there were a couple lines where like maybe I rolled my eyes, but you know, it, it didn't bother me. I think the story and the action and the characters were interesting enough uh, to where I was in on this movie pretty quickly into it. There's a good action sequence at the beginning. And uh, and I stayed, I stayed involved all the way through. I don't think that this movie wears out its welcome. Um, I think that the de-aging technology is interesting. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about it. I think it mostly works except for in one scene. But on the whole, I think an interesting action movie uh, with something on its mind, uh, that you don't necessarily see in a lot of uh, other action movies. It explores ideas that we haven't seen in a lot of action movies. Um, good performances to um, complement a maybe less than average script uh, and some really innovative action uh, that I think make for a really enjoyable, um, I guess not quite summer, but early fall thrill ride. I, I really enjoyed Gemini Man. And I think people should give it a chance despite the low critic scores. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about calling out the discrepancy between the the critical score on Rotten Tomatoes, which like you mentioned is 26%, which is quite poor in terms of when it comes to even Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I don't, I don't remember, but I think that Dark Phoenix might've even been better than that. And then the audience score, which was in the, the mid eighties, I think like 84, 85, 86, something along, like, along those lines. And again, I, I don't know if this is something that we necessarily looked at when we were reviewing movies last year, but I don't remember seeing it the number of times that we've seen it this year. I mean, it's not, it's, I wouldn't say it's unusual for there to be a discrepancy, right? Like, we talked about last week how audiences are not the same as critics when they, you know, what they go into a movie wanting or expecting um, and, and their experiences, which is obvious, right? That, that's, that's fairly sensible. That being said, it is also interesting because this movie technically was a bomb at the box office this week. It only made 20 million. 
uh, and it's probably not even going to get over 50 million in gross in domestic, which is terrible. Absolutely terrible. This movie cost 150 million yeah. on production alone. People are still seeing Joker, I think, as part of it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of it. And it's not going to get helped out next weekend as, as you know, next weekend is a robust box office released uh, between Jojo Rabbit and Zombieland. I think that this one is going to get lost in the mix, which I think is a shame because the points you're making about the technical components, you know, talking about Ang Lee's direction, specifically his filmmaking techniques, which, you know, he he gave it a go on. Is it? Lynn Smith's long, I can't remember the name of the movie, but The Long Walk or something like that. Billy, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Yes, Billy Lynn's Long time, Halftime Walk. That was the first time he tried the high frame rate, you know, which is 60 frames per second. All right, actually, actually, I think technically HFR is 124K, maybe. I can't remember, but a lot of the screenings were 60 frames per second, 2K in the US, uh, which is what I saw in 3D. And it's a very different cinematic experience, I think. You know, one of the things that I think people struggle with is that they have, understandably so, they have a very specific conception of what it's like, uh, like what a bo- you know box office film looks like, what, what a theatrical film cinema looks like. And it's not what Ang Lee is, is shooting here. He's shooting things. Uh, he's using 3D in a way that's not meant to like wow you and like, oh, that's a cool experience. Like things are jumping off the screen at me. He's trying to add depth to the shots, like actual three-dimensional depth to his shots and be able to frame things in certain ways that I think still still come out in, in, in 2D, of course, too, as well. I'm sure that was the experience you had in IMAX watching it. But also that the fact that you can make it stereoscopic in a way and have that resolution and definition in the background of your shots without having to necessarily change the focus of the shots. And I think that that lends itself to something and then also the smoother frame rate frankly it, it makes it look different it makes it look smoother it gives it someone someone i was listening to talk about it gives it a very soap opera feel because those are often those often look very different than than things that you go watch in the cinema and that smooth frame rate does kind of look like that and i think that some people will find that off-putting when they go into the theater if they are seeing this in 3d high frame rate which granted most people probably aren't seeing it in that seeing it in that way but it does it does come off as a little different however i think it really lends itself to what the filmmaking, what what filmmaking is happening here? I mean, the cinematography in this done by is it Dion Beeb or BB? I don't know how to pronounce the last name. You but, say so. Yeah, I think I think it's really awesome. I think some of these shots are really great, especially with the, the way they're able to leverage that high frame rate and use that to their advantage. Specifically with the action sequences that you're talking about, the way that some of them are shot from the perspective, you know, kind of like behind the gun sights. I think that there's a couple of scenes like that where they they're able to shoot. Uh, without too much blur because of that high frame rate from right behind the camera, like from right behind the gun, you know, almost in first person yeah. swinging around, looking different places. And that's really hard to do with normal uh, cinematic filming, like cinematography, because everything just gets blurred and it looks, it just looks like garbage uh, and you can't really make much sense of it, but because of the high frame rate, it's able to do that. And I think that that's one of the awesome parts of this movie. And, you know, I talked about in my letterbox review. I'm not sure if the people, if people are ready for that kind of filmmaking though, because I think it's so far on the cutting edge, people aren't used to it, they're not expecting it going in and they don't really know how to process it. And I think this day and age, maybe I'm overstepping with this assumption, but I think this day and age, people don't like things they aren't familiar with in cinema <laughs> a lot of the time. And so it, I think that that maybe isn't isn't necessarily landing, at least with critics. You now maybe some of the other components of the film are outweighing this. And again, it, I think it is a low percentage of people who are seeing this in the high frame rate. So maybe it's not having a big effect, but it had. A, I think it had a big effect on my movie theater because one of the things that I was mentioning to you before we started recording, Scott, is that this was probably one of the worst theatrical ex- like experiences in the theater I've had in a really long time. Uh, I was in a mostly full theater on opening 
night for like a screening, technically, I guess a, a, a Thursday night showing. And people were just kind of outrageous in the theater. Like, well, what, well, first off, the thing that was really annoying to start off is that the guy next to me brought in like a burger and fries and was just munching away over there and like cra- like crinkling his bag, which honestly, that was so annoying. You're making me mad already. Yeah. Well, it's going to get worse just from a, <laughs> just from a respect perspective. And then about halfway through the movie, there's about everyone sitting behind me, which was most of the theater, I guess just decided the whole movie was a joke. And they literally started laughing about every other line. And the script, I did not think the script was good. I, you know, I don't think it's as bad as people are saying that in the reviews that you're mentioning. But I think that there are some lines that are so clunky that they are laughable, ironically. Um, like worse than eye roll. So I think some of them are. But my audience really took it to another level where they were laughing during what <laughs> I thought were some very, you know, serious and intense scenes in terms of, you know, Junior especially coming to terms with the fact that he had been cloned and he wasn't really quite sure what to do with that and having a conversation, you know, with, with his father, with Clay Ver- or with Clive Owens, Clay Varis. And people were just dying laughing and I had no idea why. It, like, the scene wasn't funny. It wasn't bad dialogue. The performances, you know, I thought Clive Owens' performance was a little bit over the top, but not so, like not in a, not so laugh, like not laughably so. Like it was t- a little bit too much for me, but I didn't think it was to the point of laughter. And people were just dying laughing and it annoyed the living hell out of me. Um, it really did not come off well. And I, it like was so bad to the point where I almost, almost was to the point of saying something that it was like just ridiculous how much people were laughing at the film. Um, so th- on, I have to raise my hand and say that could have, that could negatively affect my perspective on the mm-hmm. film uh, just because I was so annoyed. Uh, but I thought like kind of our, like I've already mentioned, I thought the script wasn't good. I did not think it was very good at all. I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who actually wrote the script. Uh, and it just seems like there've been a lot of treatments cause this movie has yeah, been, it's been kicked around for like for 20 decade. years. Yeah. yeah for oh, almost 20 years. Um, so it, it was harder for me to discern who actually was, ultimately the one responsible for this because obviously David Benioff uh, you know of Game of Thrones fame and soon to be Star Wars fame was I'd one like of the David sorry. Benioff of Troy fame but yeah that's him <laughs> yeah and you know so I because he has the top billing on the script so I was like did he write this because this is not good this is not bode well for Star Wars if he wrote this but it, honestly going diving a little bit deeper I have no I can't tell who actually wrote this script um so that is what it is I thought that the acting performances from Will Smith Mary Elizabeth Winstead uh, Benedict Wong were all fantastic. Really enjoyed their performances. I don't really know what the point of Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character was at all, but whatever. Like she was along for the ride, and it was cool, I guess. Um, Baron's Baron Baron, who was played by Benedict Wong, I thought had, obviously had a little bit more purpose in the film because he was the guy that got Will Smith around, got uh, Henry Brogan around, and so that made a little bit more sense. But I think more so for me than the script, I just thought the story was very simple. Very. I mean, you're talking about exploring themes that are more complex and asking a little bit harder questions than a lot of action movies do. I think that is true to an extent, but it's undermined by just how simple and unoriginal the story felt. I mean, I felt like I've watched a better version of this in Looper before. I feel like I've watched other movies with like similar cloning uh, perspectives before that have like more in- that are more interesting. Maybe not from a you know action and you know, storytelling perspective. Cause again, I think that the action scenes in the cinematography are really fantastic in this movie, but I didn't find anything particularly interesting about the story. And oftentimes I think that it's when you combine that with a, you know, in my opinion, slightly lackluster script, it just made for an underwhelming experience from a story and, and, and narrative perspective for me. And I think that was one of the big downfalls. And the other big downfall for me was the score. I really was not a fan 
of Lauren Balfe's score. And, and you know, I do want to raise my hand and say, I'm not sure whether it was the music that was bad or if it was the way that it was mixed into the movie, but it just didn't work for me at all. I think it actually tonally was really asynchronous with a lot of the key moments in the film. Like there's one scene in particular, I think it was in the trailers where they're like crawling on the ground through the, like on the Gemini site, they're crawling through one of the stories and there's just like weird orchestral music that didn't make any sense at all to be playing in the background of that scene. And that's one example of thought that it was just really, really off base and what it was going for. Uh, but other than that, you know, I think I've covered a lot of the high level pieces um, we can talk about the visuals and the de-aging technology a little bit later on. But if you're ready, Scott, why don't we just go ahead and jump into Will Smith's performance, which, you know, you've already talked about being, you know, a continued, uh, another, I guess, notch in his belt in the smith Do you want to say more about that? Yeah, totally, Scott. I think that um, he really grounds this movie, right? I think talking about the, the discrepancy maybe between the script and the performances, I think this is one area where uh, he, the intensity that he brings to his performance um, really elevates maybe some of the subpar uh, dialogue. Uh, and so I think that, that it's important that he does really give his all here. Um, I really liked one scene the one scene that's in the trailer a lot where he is talking to Junior, they've confronted each other in sort of these underground caverns. Um, and he's trying to make Junior believe that Junior is, in fact, a clone of him. And he's asking him all these questions about, uh, you know, or, he, you know, he's basically saying this happened in your life. This happened in your life. Like recounting his own life story um, to, to demonstrate to Junior that, yeah, that we're the same person. And um, really sort of makes this passionate case to Junior uh, that, I, I mean, I think the movie hinges on, right, whether you actually believe that Junior would believe that. Um, Will Smith is telling the truth, right? That uh, he is in fact the same person because then of course the shift that happens in Junior's character, um, you know, it, his character has to shift for the rest of the movie to work. And I think that Will Smith made me believe it in that scene, both as, you know, current Will Smith uh, and the de-aged version of him. I think uh, his performance was all around great um, in this scene and throughout the movie. Um, I definitely believed him as the aging assassin because that's Will Smith, right? He's the aging action star. And so I kind of like that. Uh, Cause like, this is something we don't see a lot. Like Tom Cruise as you know, God love him as much as he is my favorite actor. We don't really see this narrative come up in mission impossible, right? That, but I mean, Tom Cruise is 55 years old uh, or, you know, in that age range. Um, but that doesn't seem to come up at all in the mission impossible movies. Um, you know, he's still out there doing stunts as Ethan Hunt, if, as if he were, you know, still the, the 30 something year old guy that he was in, in 1996 when the first movie came, came out. So I liked that the movie actually confronted the fact that this guy's a little bit older um, because I don't think that that's something that action movies do. Like I said, mission impossible, but even like Sly and Arnie movies, you know, in the, towards the end of their career, they were also getting up there in age. Um, and so I think uh, it's, I like it because it doesn't insult the audience. It doesn't make them believe that, this guy is doing more than he would probably be physically capable of doing. Um, and I think you definitely get that in this movie, right? Because even just like the, the, you know, obviously Will Smith is still a talented assassin, but like he's laboring a little bit in action scenes. Uh, he's not, he's not the same guy he once was clearly. Whereas when you contrast it with like the super soldiers, the super clones that Clive Owen has created, they're jumping, they're doing flips off of buildings. Like they're straight up free running, parkouring all over the place. Um, and so you see a clear like difference between uh, that and the Will Smith character. So um, 
I, I enjoyed that performance as well. I think he, or I enjoyed that aspect of the performance as well. I think he really made me buy that this guy is, hey, he's at the end of his career as an assassin. And in some ways he's at an end of a certain period of his life. Uh, and he's looking back on it with a lot of regrets, but he's also, he also really wants and is really passionate about seizing upon this opportunity to make sure that another person doesn't suffer, you know, doesn't um, follow in his footsteps and uh, fall prey to the same mistakes that he has in uh, in his career. So I I uh, enjoyed that storyline and that aspect of the movie, even if uh, perhaps the script was a bit simplistic in the way it conveyed those ideas. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Will Smith does a really great job. I, I like both of the performances here as well as both, you know, Henry and as junior. And he does a good job and he does the action sequences well. You know, you talk about him not being, you know, not not feeling like he's doing anything that he wouldn't be physically capable of doing. And, that, and that's right, because he's not winning those fistfights or with junior who is younger and, you know, maybe maybe less mature and a little bit more brash and arrogant and and. Henry has to be, you know, isn't physically out punching him. He has to play, be a little bit smarter with him in, in the action sequences. And, you know, he's really getting overwhelmed and in, in, in off, oftentimes in many of the cases and only barely escaping on, you know, multiple occasions, if not for, you know, in one case, at least not for, not for if not for Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Danny, he's not getting away uh, one time. And it's probably true for the other time as well. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's a good performance. You know, I don't, I don't know if this will be as memorable as, say, his performance as the genie earlier this year in in Aladdin. Maybe for reasons that are just kind of obvious, because it's the genie as opposed to you know this original film that you know is not that that you know it's not going to make a billion dollars. It's not going to make anywhere close to a billion dollars. So maybe that's a factor as well. But you know, he I think he really did make the most of what he had to work with in the script, and I liked his chemistry. You know as always with pretty much anyone that's in the cast. I think he has a great rapport with both Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Benedict Wong. So I've got nothing but praise for this performance as well. Yeah. Go Will Smith. Yeah. Go Will Smith. I mean, he's going to be in plenty more stuff. You got bad boys for life coming yeah. up in and, January, in January. And I will raise my hand and say that I, prior to this year, I was not a Will Smith fan. I think that he had reached a point in his career where he was just kind of taking the same role again, not really challenging himself with um, many roles um, and hadn't seen him play a really fresh character in a while. Um, and I think he's done that twice this year now um, with um, with the genie, of course. Um, I, I thought he brought something really, really great to that character. And then with this, um, character, which I think for the reasons that I've already said is different from a lot of the action heroes that he's played in the past. Yeah. Uh, agreed. I think that if someone had told me this was tied into the suicide squad cinematic universe, where this is just a, another version of Deadshot, then that's kind of right. Cause he's, this is like a badass assassin who can make shots from two kilometers on yeah. people. So in, in many ways, this is a little bit of Deadshot in it, but no, it's, it's, it is a different role doing way more than what suicide squad was doing in my opinion. But Agreed. So moving on to the supporting cast here, there are three main people that I kind of think of as in the supporting cast, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Benedict Wong, Clive Owen. Did any of those three stick out to you or would you like to mention someone else? No, I mean, I think those are the main three. I, I'll start with Clive Owen just because you mentioned that his performance is a bit over the top. I definitely understand where you're coming from on that. I think it's just for me, that's Clive Owen. And I, I kind of, uh, I, I feel like at this point, you kind of know what you're going to get with him um, in this sort of role. And so I thought, you know, he delivered what I was expecting and it wasn't anything that was really distractingly, um, distractingly over the top to me um, as, you know, maybe this sort of like overly emotional, sort of like gaslighting his young son 
uh, quote unquote son um, throughout the movie. I thought he was effective doing that. Um, for, as for Benedict Wong, like I said up top, he's mainly the comic relief here, but I think he's he's solid comic relief. I think he he gets some laughs. He, you know, I, I would say that he leans a little bit into the persona that we've seen him. Um, you know, per perfect in the in the Doctor Strange and Avengers movies. I don't think that this character is super far removed from the sort of uh, comedic uh, tone that he takes on in those movies. Uh, but I thought that that was well, I thought that that was appreciated. I thought the levity was appreciated because uh, like we've talked about, a lot of the movies is really serious. It tackles some, uh, you know, pretty serious themes. There's some pretty impassioned moments, uh, particularly in the Will Smith performance. So I like that we have... Um, these moments of levity, even if, you know, the jokes don't always land. Um, again, the script, uh, maybe some question marks there. Finally, for Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I, I do enjoy her. I was, you know, really excited to see that she was going to be in this movie. I mentioned that I don't think her character has a lot to do, and I still think that's true. But I would push back a little bit on your um, claim that you don't understand the point of the character, because... I think for me, this character represents something else in Will Smith's life, in the life of Henry, that um, he missed out on sort of because of the life he chose to live as this sort of tool for uh, the government, as this assassin with really no emotions. Uh, because you see there that maybe at some point there would have been a romance. Um, and there's even a, an exchange of dialogue between the two of them, like uh, where he says basically that, that... Um, he's not interested in her anymore because of, you know, the, the age that he is basically. Um, and so they have this, you know, dynamic that never, you know, never evolves into romance because, you know, to Will Smith at this point, he's, he's past that. Right. Like, I think maybe he does say like, if I had met you 10 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that, um, then yeah, then maybe we would have been in a relationship. So, I mean, that kind of spells it out right there that I think uh, he sees this, um, as something he missed out on by, by choosing to, you know, guard his emotions and sort of suffocate his emotions so that he could perform his job as the best assassin in the world. Like again, Clive Owen kind of, and you know, the government agency that he worked for kind of required him to do this uh, in order to perform his job successfully. Uh, and I think what we see in this movie is it's kind of taken a toll on him. And this is just one of the areas where that is. He wasn't able to have a relationship with her. That's another line um, where they're talking about, he, he, she asked him something about being in a serious relationship. And he's like, this is the most serious relationship or like, do you count this one or something like that? So he's counting like the two days that they've spent together as a, the closest thing he's had to uh, an actual human connection with someone. So that was the role that I felt that her character played. I, again, I think that only comes up in a, a few scenes. And I don't think that she's like a huge help in any of the action sequences or anything. So the character, I, I was a bit perplexed about that because she is supposed to be, you know, an agent for like the same um, organization that Will Smith worked for. Yeah. Um, so she, she would presumably have some sort of uh, ability to help him out in these fight scenes, but we don't see that very much except maybe in the final scene a little bit, but um, when she shoots the grenade or throws the grenade or whatever, um, that was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, so good performances all around, even if uh, the character development and the the script let the performances down in a couple of places. Yeah, no, I think I've said my bit on Clive. I don't really have too much more to add than I think it, you know, it is a little bit over the top for me. Maybe that is what you get with Clive Owen. Uh, but maybe I'm not familiar enough to Clive Owen to have that expectation going in. So it did, it did just feel like a little bit, a little bit more than I, than I wanted out of that, I guess. And, and, you know, oftentimes it was the scenes with Clive Owen that were getting 
a lot of those laughs that I was talking about too. Cause people I mean, just felt he was being too serious. Maybe. Well, that's the thing. He, his character is like overly sincere, but I think, I think there for, to some extent yeah. there is, there is a reason for that. Right. Because he's trying to, he's trying to convey to junior that he is an emotional person. Right. Because Will Smith is yeah. like, no, look at all of these things that you're missing out on. Um, Look yeah. at all these feelings you're not getting to feel because sure. you're in this position. Yeah, and his character is super one-dimensional too, so it's not like he has much to work with, to be honest. I mean, he's, yeah. he's your classic one-dimensional, I just want to... Corrupt bureaucrat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it, maybe there's some... I, I hesitate to say complexity, but maybe there's something different about him. The fact that he's just like, I want to protect people from going to war by just creating these super soldiers. And I just think there's a lot of... And I think that's part of a lot of the disconnect with the story as well. Like, I don't understand his motive i don't really understand his motivations or for that matter will smith's like or and junior's like and anti because there's some of the things that he's saying like i mean yeah i guess if you don't have to send people to war that's like probably a good thing right it just doesn't explore that theme at all yeah. i don't think and so i think it, it doesn't leave clive owen with much to do other than deliver those lines and he delivers them he delivers them uh with with a lot and you know it just didn't work as well for me for benedict wong i think you're spot on it feels exactly like um is it is it Wong? I can't Wong, remember. His, yeah, yeah, I was going to say it is Wong in, in Doctor Strange in the MCU. Uh, it, it reminded me of that character a lot, which is nice. Not original, but nice. Uh, I think it works well. Benedict Wong, I think, is way underrated in terms of his ability and talents. And he often will get these really minor roles. Like he had the role of one of the like one of the doctors in Annihilation from the end of the movie. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah. He just has a bunch of really random small roles and I'd really like to see him, you know, in, in more significant roles, even if they're still supporting more significant roles out there. Cause I think he's a real talent. Uh, but Mary Elizabeth Winstead, you know, I, I think I hear what you're saying around that point around it, her being something that, that Will Smith has missed out on and having to wrestle with that. But again, I think it's just one of those things where the script and the story lets it down because I don't think it explores it that well because and I hear what you're saying here, but like I just don't think that that narrative around that picture about you know it being him being past that point in his life for him not having a second chance. May, maybe that's realistic, but I don't know. I just didn't necessarily buy that part of the, the script. I mean, we only get a very narrow cut of these people's lives in this particular movie. We don't know what happens after, but it feels also like a little bit short-sighted to be like, nah, I'm just gonna live. I'm just gonna be forever. You know, hashtag forever alone. Now that I've been, it just felt like very sad, sad Will Smith uh, in that sense. So I didn't really understand the point. And I've also been really honest. This is maybe getting off base a little bit here and we can, this is maybe a, a transition into the plot and the script even. So this will be a nice segue. I don't really understand why Will Smith really cares all that much about his clone. I don't know why he doesn't pull the trigger uh, at any point in this film when he has a chance. I don't, I don't think that's clear to me. I don't think that, that he has a real incentive to, to feel any sort of remorse or sorrow other than the fact that, it's him, but not him. And may maybe that makes me a soulless, heartless person. I don't know. But that's something that didn't necessarily click with me. And so we can actually kind of just transition to that now. We can talk about that and then any other aspect of the plot, the script that we haven't already touched on. Yeah, I think I don't know that it's to your point. I don't know that it's the fact that it's him necessarily is the most important thing. I think it's just the fact that this is someone else who is in a similar position to him in terms of like his relationship to Clive Owen and he's being breeded as the next super soldier. He's being, uh, you know, breeded to be the same sort of emotionless, um, you know, 
contract killer, killer. that yeah. yeah um that Will Smith was um and so I think he again he's at a point in his life where he can't do anything to really change the person he's become uh you know he's he's had this realization that the organization he's working for um is not really who they thought they were um and that's kind of the 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 straw that breaks the camel's back he's already thinking about retirement that kind of like uh, you know, just just pushes him on his way. Uh, and so he can't change what he's done. He can't change the person that he's become. He he can try to some extent, like, you know, he he can he could be, try to become a different person in his older years. Uh, to, to your point, and I think that I do empathize with your your point that I don't know that like it's necessarily like true or or realistic that he should just like give up on the relationship between him and and Mary Elizabeth Winstead just because of the age thing. But uh, I understand why they did it for the thematic purposes. Um, so I think that, um, you know, when he encounters Junior, obviously the fact that it is him um, adds a new layer because, right, like in a way he's, he's trying to create a new narrative for himself. He's trying to live vicariously through this literal other version of him. It's, it's like the hindsight Will Smith, like he, if he could go back in time, um, here is how he would do things. He he's getting this opportunity. We've all felt that feeling, right? That um, you know, there there are certain events, times in the past where, like, you know, if I could go back, I would do that differently. I would make a different choice. Maybe it's a big choice. Maybe it's you know something simple like a conversation. Uh, and but that's what Will Smith um, is experiencing in this movie. That's what Henry is experiencing is the uh, ability to go back and uh, while not actually change the past sort of change the past uh, and more importantly, change the future um, by destroying what Clive Owen stands for, destroying what this organization stands for uh, and encouraging this, you know, younger version of himself and hopefully other people in uh, that person's, in, in Junior's position um, to understand the importance of emotion and feeling something and having a human connection and being a person before you are a killer, but you know, put putting uh, humanity, put, putting your humanity before like your ambition and your job. That's where I think the Ad Astra connection comes in. You might call me crazy there, but I think that there are, uh, you know, maybe some tangential similarities, but that's sort of what I see Will Smith's motivation is in reaching out to Junior. I mean, that may not resonate with you at all, but that was my takeaway. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. And I, I think that that makes sense. And, you know, I'm glad you kind of laid it out there. For me, I, I think still... I think I was already feeling parts of that and it was good to hear you flesh it out in greater detail. I still think I'm not sure I quite connect with the extent that it feels like Will Smith goes to, to connect with junior. If the motivation is specifically to maybe make a difference in one person's life, who's walking down the same road that he walked down. It's one of those things where I think it's really weird, you know, to, to take your point around. It's not really about the fact that it's his clone. It's about the fact that it's another person in a similar position to him. I don't really understand why he's his clone then. Like there then there would not really be a point for it to be his clone. Well, I think I it's important I think it's important that I think it is important that it's his, that it's his clone, right? Because it is it is literally him right. going back to change his own. But I also think for the purposes of the plot, like if Will Smith is the best assassin ever, like as they claim, it sure. would make sense that he was the person that they want to clone and like when we see Junior, yeah. you know, again parkouring and everything, yeah, he looks like an absolute beast yeah i mean that, that's fair I, I guess i just don't see the. i hear what you're saying and i think that is what they were trying to do 
I just don't, it doesn't quite all connect for me that Will Smith would go to these lengths to try to make a difference. Like literally risking his life, he probably should have died on several occasions to like have this uh, effect or impact on this this person, this, I mean, a clone, right? But this person's life uh, who he does not know. And it, it, it isn't immediate, it isn't Im- imminently clear to me. <laughs> sure. But it isn't immediately clear to me that, you know, him not pulling the trigger when he had the chance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All that connects with the Will Smith were immediately, intro- you know, the Henry Brogan were immediately introduced to at the beginning of the film. So that that's just, you see something that, you know, works for you in a way that doesn't quite work for me. I definitely hear the point that you're making and it makes sense why it's having an effect on you that way. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the most rational take will come out somewhere in the middle of our two takes um, and see, see, see something in both of our arguments uh, because I think we are we are presenting different perspective, different ends of the spectrum here. Um, sure. But you know, that's that's a good thing. We don't want to just be agreeing with each other all the time. Yeah, even and if I think- we do share a name, I mean, we we agree with each other in our name, so we got to disagree about some stuff. Exactly, exactly. All right, so moving on to the last thing before we do in a wrap up, and it's the visual, Scott. You know, I touched on them briefly because I did I did manage I did decide at first I was going to just go see it in IMAX, and then I did decide to go see it in 3D high frame rate. And it was an experience. I walked through that already. I don't want to repeat myself there, Scott. So I'd love to just talk about some of those, you know, the visuals specifically re- that we can both talk about here related to the action, related to that cinematography that it's taking up in those action sequences. Because I thought that was probably one of the most interesting aspects of the movie for me. Yeah, well, let's just get into that action scene, which I alluded to at the beginning that I think is the best of the year up there with the John Wick scene. Um, and that's this motorcycle chase scene. Um, of course, you see parts of it in the trailer. You see the actual uh, craziness of Junior attacking Will Smith with a motorcycle as his weapon, like a revving it up into him and everything, which is really cool and crazy and something you, you never see in movies. But the, enti- the entire sequence, like from beginning to end, is spectacular. Like you have this, like these perspective shots, uh, like it, like you, you talked about like the first person, it really does. It's like first person. We're watching um, one of them from behind, like um, ride the motorcycle. Like it feels like we are sitting on the motorcycle with them practically. Um, and they're like riding along this wall and looking down at the other one and they're shooting at each other and doing all of these stunts. Like uh, it's, it's spectacular. Like, you know, we've seen um, plenty of motorcycle and car chases in movies before Hobbs and Shaw had a motorcycle chase in it. Um, but this movie knocks that one out of the blows that one out of the water. Um, not even close. It's yeah. it's not just the the cool like things that they are doing, like attacking each other with the motorcycles and stuff like that, but just the way that it's shot really is it's incredibly immersive. And like I said, I didn't see it in I think this is probably more a product of seeing it in IMAX because obviously I didn't see it in the higher frame rate. But it, it was such a, it, it was so, it, watching it was so clean. Like I never uh, got lost um, in the scene. I, I knew what was going on at all times. Um, and there were never like any out of focus moments or anything like that. Um, I just thought it was a, a really well done, innovative, creative action scene. Um, and, and you know, we've seen so many action scenes in, in movies um, this year and beyond this year. Um, and so when an action movie can do something where I sit back and I'm like, wow, I've never seen that before. That's that's impressive to me. And that's exactly how I felt after this scene in Gemini Man. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a really cool scene. I think from, from my perspective, the kind of end of that scene, the culmination, the finale of that scene where they are, where he, like where Junior is hitting him with the motorcycle. I think that that part maybe goes on for just a little bit too long if I'm really picking out uh, you know, a small nitpick there. But 
I think this scene is fantastic. The the first person like cinematography shots there are awesome. They are so cool. I haven't ever seen a shot like that look as clean as it does. One, I can't really think of another shot that looks like that from a movie that I can remember. And two, certainly it didn't look as good as this movie did. And I think that for that alone, this movie has accomplished something really outstanding. And, you know, I think you get that not just in the motorcycle scene, but the motorcycle scene is the best example of it. I think you, you get a feel for that as well in the catacomb scene when they're doing the hand-to-hand fight. I mean, how cr- crisp and clean that scene looks, even though these two people are you know throwing punches. It's pretty fast-paced and frenetic, you know, hand-to-hand combat. And it looks as clean as clean and as crisp as it does. For me, seeing that in high frame rate really lends itself to that. But I imagine that also translated to your experience as well. Yeah, no, I just think the the choreo- the fight choreography is really strong in this movie. Um, in the hand to hand to hand combat scenes and stuff, you know, we've talked about again. Look, go, let's go back to Hobbs and Shaw. We talked about by the end of the movie, it was like we're so tired of seeing people punching each other. Um, but I feel like the choreography here. Uh, it, it's constantly keeping the fact that there are ultimately are just punching each other and, and attacking each other. Um, it, it's keeping it fresh with the different moves that they're making and the setting that they find themselves in. Uh, I never felt like I was tired of watching one of these scenes. And uh, again, that's a credit to the technical uh, aspects of the film. Yeah. I think the last part of the visuals that we should talk about, which we haven't really talked about at all yet. And that is the de-aging tech used on junior taking Will Smith really recreating the younger Will Smith in a way that's very different than the other types of de-aging that's happening. I did my homework a long time ago on exactly how it was different. And honestly, I didn't refresh myself before this podcast, so I can't speak to it. But I know that the way to workshop created Junior uh, using lots of, of different innovative de-aging specs, using you know shots of Will Smith's face from a long time ago, rather than just trying to make the current Will Smith look younger. Uh, they're really taking a kind of a, I like to think of it as kind of like a bottom up rather than a top down approach to the de-aging. And so I thought it, I thought it worked really well. You mentioned one scene in which, in particular, which it didn't work quite well. Scott, what are your thoughts on the de-aging overall? Yeah, I think it, it does work really well, except so two things. First of all, um, the mouths look, the mouth looks a little strange. Uh, Mm. And I've seen a couple other people saying this, so I know I'm not crazy, uh, not that crazy. Um, Yeah. But I think that I don't know. There's something about the way that his mouth moves. It's like he he his his lips are a little bit constricted. Like he's not fully using his mouth like he should be. Like a like the person other person out of another person. <laughs> it's not it's not that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You made a person out of another person. Yeah, that's not the best line. But um, people died during that during that line in my movie. But uh. But so that was one thing. And then the final, the very final scene of the movie, I was like, whoa, what the heck happened here? Like they're, they're, a, person. they're on a college <laughs> campus and he sees uh, Junior from a distance and like, like waves at him. And like, I was like, what? Who is that? Like, it felt like his face had like come off of his body practically. Like, <laughs> it was distractingly bad. And it did not even like, until he got like right up to them, I was like, I guess that's junior, right? Like I can't really tell because I guess he's supposed to be a little bit older in this scene. I think so. Yeah. So, but I, I, I don't know. They, they, it seems, feels like they really dropped the ball. Maybe they like ran out of uh, effects budget for like the final scene to do this de-aging stuff. But yeah, I mean, you're, when you're 150 million deep, what's another couple million to finish? the event? I mean, and I mean, look, like this is one of the first movies that we've seen do this sort of thing. So yeah. like there are obviously going to be kinks and stuff with it. And I think on the whole, uh, it's impressive. And yes, we're going to see this technology done better, maybe even this year in the Irishman. But um, yeah. 
so so it's it's natural to expect some mistakes. So it, ultimately, it didn't like frustrate me too much because I think yeah. as a whole, it's impressive what they're able to do. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing to remember because I don't know if I have too much more to add on top of what you're saying here. That like Ang Lee is on the you know on the cliff edge of cutting edge cinema. I think, and I don't know if people have are are up there with him and are ready for to appreciate what he's doing. But I think what he's doing is really cool. I think it works more specifically talking about the de-aging and the high frame rate kind of together. I think it looks fantastic and works far more often than it looks silly or looks bad. And that's the key takeaway for me. Like, will it be perfected over time and be done better than what Angley did here? If it doesn't, that would shock me. Yeah. But what I think he's able to do being kind of the first person doing this is fantastic. Yeah, no, I think that's that sums it up well. All right, Scott, what's your favorite scene? I think we probably will have the same favorite scene here. Yeah, I mean, I it's got to be that motorcycle scene yeah. for sure. Um, as far as like dramatic scene, like I said, I do like that scene in the caverns where, where they confront each other. Uh, I, I like, there's a really nice moment, uh, again, talking about moments of levity, there's a really nice moment of levity that happens when um, when Will Smith asked me, you know, why did you send, why, why would they send you? And he's like, um, well, because I'm the best. And Will Smith just like points the site down and was like, you are obviously not the best. And everybody in my theater started laughing. I was like, okay, like that's that's a fair bit of comedy in the movie. Like I felt like that was intentional. Just the way that he delivered the line um, said to me that that was intentional. And I thought it was a good moment, like I said, to, and other, to punctuate an otherwise um, really serious scene, right? Because like one of the things that people probably laughed about is like these you know, the the fact that people are making these overly sincere statements like, well, I'm the best. And that kind of like peels it back and is like, okay, you're obviously not the best. Like, come on now. Like, these are just platitudes. So I appreciated that. Yeah, that motorcycle scene is pretty, pretty badass. Um, that's the one I, I got to go with. I think especially any of those shots that were from that first person perspective, you know, look like you were playing a video game, which, you know, it, it, some may work for some people, may not work for others, but pretty cool that, that you can feel like that in in the film itself, because you're still just watching a movie, which I think is pretty cool. One of the things I will say to go back briefly and tie this into the story, a scene that I did not like very much. I thought a scene that was really awesome. You, know, you talk about Mary Elizabeth Winstead throwing the grenade or throwing the propane tank or whatever the hell it was and shooting it and kind of ending that climactic fight scene uh, with the uh, the other clone. I just thought that scene also like the big reveal. That scene was so freaking predictable. And I just rolled my eyes. Yeah. So I'm like, of course. Of course, this is so dumb. This movie's story is so dumb that it's another like super soldier. Well, I wouldn't go that far to say that the movie's story is so dumb, but yeah, I, I was a little like, did we really need this when when that reveal no. happened? We didn't. I wouldn't have minded the movie being about. I mean, the action that final that fight scene was cool, but I wouldn't have minded also the movie being five minutes shorter. But whatever. There's All also right, an under there's also an underwater shot that's really cool where like someone mm. is being drowned and then they come up like out of the water and it's at a different point in time that I, I can't describe it better than that. But um, <laughs> you'll know it when it happens in the movie. I thought that was really cool too. Yeah, I mean all that all that I'll say about that is Scott is that if you want to watch a good underwater movie, go watch Aquaman. <laughs> go watch a drift. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> hey, Adrift also had an amazing shot at the beginning of the movie, but that was the only thing amazing about it. I was so. going to say that. You could turn it off after two minutes. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. Scott, of all, like I said up top, of all the movies, that, of all the quote-unquote bad movies that I have enjoyed this year and given positive reviews to, I think this is the one uh, that I hope that in the future the most people will revisit and say, 
hey, you know what? Maybe at the time uh, that movie wasn't right in the particular time that it came out, but it holds up really well now. And, you know, again, particularly from a technical standpoint, what it did action wise was really innovative for the time. Uh, I really enjoyed it. 8.0. <clears throat> All right, Scott, that's a very, that's a quite good score. That's almost, a, I would say that as a great movie then by that score. Uh, for me, I'm coming in. Can, yeah. What'd you say? Sorry. It's on the cusp. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say great, but it's on the cusp. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'm coming out lower. That will not surprise our listeners. Uh, 5.0. Yikes. No, it's fine. I mean, I thought that there were some parts that were very bad. There were some parts that were good, and it shook out even. I think on the most on the All most right. part. So that's a 5.0. All right. Well, that should just about do it for our discussion of Gemini Man. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing this past week's news. Uh, we're trying a little bit of a new format in the news section this week that will hopefully keep it briefer and keep the conversation also more interesting. Uh, and then we'll do a trailer, a trailer for Disney's. Actually, I should say Pixar's next release. That's Onward. And then we'll be wrapping things up. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Before the break, I mentioned we're trying a new way to do the news section this week. And so we're going to kind of go through a bunch of stories really quickly, going to read some of those news. And then we're going to have one uh, a conversation about one of those pieces of news and theorize about some stuff and what we like, maybe what we don't like about that news topic when we get to the end. And then we'll switch gears quickly to the trailer. We just think a lot of times we talk about these news stories and we don't really have much to add beyond, oh, that sounds cool. Can't wait. <laughs> so, you know, trying to trying to keep it a little bit more concise in that respect. So. We'll go ahead and jump right in. You know, Scott, there's been a lot of news about The Little Mermaid and different casting news. I mean, we heard that Harry Styles is no longer going to be Prince Eric. I think Ben Platt should be Prince Eric now. So I think that would be a great piece of casting. I think that's still up in the air. But some some of the people that I've heard are kind of in talks are people that I've never heard of before, which is like, fine, whatever. There doesn't You don't need to have, you know, bona fide stars necessarily in these roles. But whoever they do cast will be a big step down from Harry Styles, which is a huge name recognition, name power in that. But uh, regardless, we did hear this week that David Diggs of Hamilton fame, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda being attached to this project and a producer role, writing some of the music, uh, obviously knows David Diggs very well from the fact that he played Lafayette and uh, Thomas Jefferson in the original Hamilton cast. But he's been cast as Sebastian. That's a pretty cool casting. We also heard this week that CBS Studios is making a miniseries based on James Comey's memoir that's adapt will be adapted by Billy Ray, who also had writing credits on Gemini Man, by the way. Uh, I think and he had the story credit on Gemini Man, if I'm correct. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I'd fact check that. I'm not 100% sure that's true. But okay. yeah, no, I, he he's one of the people that's given some sort of either writing or story credits on Gemini Man. So take that for what it's worth. But it will be starring in that lead role as James Comey, the Emmy Award winning Jeff Daniels, and will also be uh, starring Brendan Gleeson as Donald Trump. I think that's a really interesting project over at CBS Studios. But the fact that there's really no way I'll ever buy, like be subscribed to CBS All Access, I'm probably not going to see that, unfortunately. But uh, I just think that that's going to, you know, kind of bottom out on the, you know, the lowest. I guess the it's going to get a raw deal for me, probably in terms of subscription services for streaming. Uh, in other news, Yahya Abdul-Mateen Scott, uh, I should say the second, uh, 
as you pointed out in our Discord, in our in our chat this week, that he's going to be uh, getting paid over the next couple of years. And one of the things that's going to be paying him is the fact that he is going to be in a lead role in Matrix Four alongside Keanu Reeves and Carrie Animas, who will be returning. It's rumored that he might be playing either a young Morpheus or a, or a, I guess a family member of Morpheus, either a son or a nephew or something like that. It's a little bit uh, up in the air, but I think that's a cool casting. And you know, I when I resaw Matrix and for the 20 year anniversary uh, release a couple months ago in theaters, it reminded me how just much that movie slaps. And I can't wait to, to see a rematch. And I hope that they're of course more like the original matrix than, than those sequels. Cause those did get panned a little bit. Uh, I guess a, a couple more pieces of news before we do pivot to our topic of the week. Sony, we did hear this week is offloading some troubled projects to streamers, including the Noah Centineo led masters of the universe movie to Netflix. Got, I mean, we, we, we already saw that this movie had been delayed in production I mean, this, this movie's been delayed in production forever, but even after casting Noah Centineo had been delayed, the production had for it had been delayed. And honestly, this probably makes a lot of sense since Noah Centineo loves doing rom-coms over at Netflix. They already have a relationship over there. So he's going to keep producing content for Netflix, and it's going to be in the form of Masters of the Universe, it sounds like, over there for uh, the OG streaming service. Alfonso Cuaron, somebody who's very, very well known to Netflix for his you know writing, directing, uh, role editing role as well for for Roma last year, winning them several Academy Awards. Turns out he's not signing with Netflix, though. His TV deal that he's been negotiating and putting himself out there with the different streaming services, it's going to Apple TV Plus. They're showing a ton of cash. We saw them miss out on JJ Abrams early, his TV deal earlier this year when I believe JJ. I think went to Paramount, but maybe it was Warner Brothers. I can't remember right now off the top of my head. But that's a that's a big win for Apple TV Plus, I think, and and a huge loss for Netflix. Although. They have so many creators over there on their platform already between Ryan Murphy, Shonda Rhimes. They've got so many people over there producing content for them. They're probably not going to miss them too much, but it's a big win for Apple TV Plus for sure. And then the last piece of news before we get to our big topic of the day, that's that a training day prequel has been announced uh, with a younger version of the lead role, which is, of course, originally played by Denzel Washington. Of course, instantly rumors abound that John David Washington will be playing that role. But I think he's – I was listening to someone say that he thought that – specifically Jeff Snyder thought that a better piece of casting – would be John Boyega, of course, from Finn Fame and Star Wars uh, for that role. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. There hasn't really been any casting news yet on that. and We'll see who gets that role. But Scott, the topic of the week that we're going to be talking about today, and that is the fact that a female-led John Wick spinoff has been announced. It's going to be titled Ballerina. So you can kind of, if you've seen John Wick Chapter 3, you can get an idea of where that focus might be. Uh, that's going to be directed by Lynn Wiseman. And no, not any news yet on which characters are going to be returning or starring in this show, Scott. But are you excited about this spinoff? We've already heard that The Continental, you know, a TV spinoff, has been announced. But I think in, in some ways this has made a few more waves uh, just because uh, of kind of the relevance and the prominence specifically of that kind of that look into the ballerina world that you kind of get there in, uh, in John Wick Chapter 3. What do you think of this? Yeah, I'm a little bit uh, trepidatious about Lynn Wiseman being the director because, of course, he is most famous for the 86 Underworld movies, none of which are uh, considered to be uh, good. But, you know, maybe they're like Gemini, man. Maybe they're they're all actually really good and I should just watch them. But um, but yeah, so so that doesn't make me excited. But the concept of this movie does and um, the possibilities for casting. I mean, in reality, they might go with someone who we haven't heard of before. Um Although I think that, you know, to match the fact that they have Keanu Reeves, a, a well-established actor playing John Wick, they should 
try to go for a, a you know a known name. Uh, but anytime one of these roles like this, I do comes up, I do like to go down my you know list of up and coming actresses that um, and, and see if any of them I think would be a good fit for the role. And you know, Scott, we discussed uh, Anya Taylor Joy as a possibility. Uh, my number one for her would still I would want her to be Catwoman. But uh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. I think that that's probably a long shot at this point. I, I will say I did call I did call a shot earlier this year with Paul Walter Hauser being Richard Jewell. So uh, if if uh, ATJ turned out to be Catwoman, then that would be really cool. But as a second option, uh, I think that this could be uh, a, a great option for her. Um, I think she definitely has the gravitas to pull off a role like this if they are going for a um, more John Wick style feel, because obviously there's not much humor in the John Wick movies. That's not really their, their game. So I think um, that someone like her who has a, you know, a good experience in dramatic and even thrillers with something like the witch um, would be a good, a good match for this type of film. Um, Scott, do you have any, uh, any other names you'd like to throw out there? Yeah. I mean, Anya Taylor-Joy is one of the first ones that came to my mind uh, too, when we were talking, you know, in our, in our chat about this announcement, I think just to talk about the, you know, the kind of the obvious person who might be featuring, maybe not in a main role, but at least in a supporting role in this movie. I think Angelica Houston is probably a slam dunk oh, yeah. for, th for this movie just because she was playing kind of the leader of the Ruscaroma, which is that ballerina dance, that ballerina troupe. Uh, she, and she is still alive, I believe, at, 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 after John Wick chapter three. And she didn't have much, really much to do in John Wick three. So you think if they got, you know, an Academy Award winning actress, then they would want to yeah. bring her back for something else. Yeah. So I imagine that one is, you know, all down to just how much are they paying her for the movie, right? And you know, beyond that, if if I have to think outside the box on Taylor Joy, maybe if, if this is going to go the direction, if it's going to be if it's going to be that action focus that the John Wick universe is known for, and they want someone with kind of some bona fide chops around action, maybe Vanessa Kirby, maybe someone they could take a look at uh, for who's you know proven in action franchises already. Yeah, I was just thinking another another name that I might throw out there uh, is Dakota Johnson, who I think uh, played a really good ballerina in uh, Suspiria last year. Um, she she did some you know th thrillerish work in in Bad Times at the El Royale as well. So I think that could be an interesting name also. Yeah, I think those are both good shouts. I just think that I want Vanessa Kirby. I you know when I think of people like I want Vanessa Kirby to be in most things. And honestly. Maybe if she loses the blonde hair for for this role, I think that this role could fit her uh, really well. The fact that you know she is a trusted talent in terms of being in a major action franchise. Yeah. I was going to say she's going to go for the Holy Trinity with uh, Fast and Furious, Mission Impossible, and John Wick if she's able to pull that off. I'm all for it, man. I don't know about you, but I'm all for it. And she's in the Crown too, so it doesn't like she doesn't do dramatic stuff too. That's not action focused. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, no, I I think all those would be good shouts. And you know, if it ends up being ATJ or Vanessa Kirby or Dakota Johnson. You know, I think I would be over the moon about that because I think all three of those people are really strong talents that, you know, could could and definitely deserve lead roles in in you know prominent you know not Fifty Shades of Grey movies and not not yeah. horror, not genre films necessarily. And on that topic, you know, there are a lot of movies we don't get to talk about on the podcast, Scott. So I will say, uh, give a shout out to the Peanut Butter Falcon, which Dakota Johnson gives a great performance in, and I think is a small indie crowd pleasing movie that people should check out. Just tangent, but uh, she is in it and she's really good. Yeah, I had actually forgotten that. That's good to know. It's on my it's on my watch list. I'll definitely be seeing that before the end of the year, along with the thirty thousand other movies that are still to come out. So indeed, <laughs> yeah. But number one being Parasite, of course. It is on my list to see next weekend. Great. It's on my very long list of movies to see next weekend. There are quite a few coming out. Uh, all right, Scott. I think that will do it for our news. Moving on to our trailers. There's some trailers that came out this week, but really only one that I think is worthy of discussing on the podcast this week, and that is Pixar's next film, 
onward. We got a teaser for this earlier this year. You were really not that impressed with the teaser. I also was not super vibing with it, but I was a little bit warmer on it than you were. Scott, did the trailer here change your mind at all? A little bit. I think that um, I still don't have much of an idea what this movie is about, but I got to tell you what it's about. It's about them trying to like restore their father for a day who is like prematurely died. I kind of got that in the first half of the trailer, but then the second half, I don't know, like kind of confused me a little bit, but I think I got a better sense of the tone of the movie and yeah, it looks, it, it looks promising. I think it's kind of getting back to, you know, what Pixar does well, which is create a unique universe with, you know, character, like very creatively designed characters. There are a lot of weird looking characters um, in this movie. The setting looks a little quirky. Um, and like just the idea of like restoring your dad, who is just a pair of legs, like that's just kind of an oddball idea for, you know, a, a Pixar movie. So I, I like that. Um, I, I like them, you know, challenging themselves creatively. I've also heard that at D23, they showed some footage from this and apparently it just went down like gangbusters. Like people loved it. Um, so yeah, they got a good voice cast with Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. Um, I, I'm a little more open-minded now. Pixar, I mean, Pixar, you know, deserves my trust at this point. And I think that uh, this one will probably deliver ultimately. Yeah, like recently at least, the Good Dinosaur is probably the only miss that they that they've had. Uh, yeah. They've and car sequels, but yeah, other than that, yeah, I try to put those out of my mind. I don't like any. I mean, car. I think Cars the original movie is also not very good, but maybe that's a hot take. I don't know. Um, anyway, what'd you say? It's fine, <laughs> just fine, just which, fine. which is below the bar for Pixar. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. I think that this, you know, this trailer, my perspective, like I mentioned, I was a little bit warmer on the teaser from you were, and I still feel about the same. I think that this movie will probably be good. I, I mean, of course I'll see it because we'll probably talk about it on the podcast. This just doesn't feel like the kind of Pixar movie that I love. It doesn't seem like it's inside out. It doesn't seem like it's up. It doesn't seem like it's Toy Story. It seems like it's doing something else. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I'm glad they're doing something different. They're creating a new world. They're not doing a sequel. You know, they were getting slammed for a while by only doing sequels, not just not producing original content after being acquired by Disney. And I'm really happy they're doing something different. I'm very open-minded about it. But this trailer, it didn't wow me. It didn't wow me. I feel about the same as I did from the teaser. So we're probably, I guess, in, in the grand scheme of things, we're probably about in the same place now in terms of our, you know, hype level, so to speak, for this. And I just think overall, but right now, I'd have very you know, mixed feelings walking into. Yeah, that's pro- that's probably fair. But I, 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 again, I think Pixar deserves our trust. And I, yeah. I trust that there will be ultimately a, an emotional undercurrent in this movie because there usually are in their movies, uh, you know, except last year, I thought that Incredibles 2, at least for me, was missing that a little bit. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, and I absolutely trust them. Like I, like I said, I think that they will bring that all home. And sometimes it's hard to show that kind of emotional yeah. undercurrent in a trailer. It's very hard to do that in a trailer, I think, especially in you know, two minutes long. You don't have that much time. So I'm definitely I'm definitely kind of punting my my expectations and, and my hype over for this down the road. I'm just being honest when I'm saying I'm not super excited about this yet. Sure. And that's fair. Yeah. All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 61 of Some Like It Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Uh go balls. First one of the season. I'm kidding. First FTC uh, win, it might as well be the first one. Yeah, UTC doesn't count, I guess. Uh, but before we do leave today, Scott, I do want to go ahead and promote our brand new mini series again. The first episode of which is already out. We've already, uh, it's already dropped. We're talking about uh, the Phantom Menace first. 
And that, of course, is a part of our Star Wars Countdown miniseries. We'll be releasing a new episode every week from now until The Rise of Skywalker comes out in a couple months in December. And on each episode, Scott and I will be revisiting and reviewing each live-action Star Wars film with a very special guest. That's Jay Habib, who has never seen a Star Wars film before. Absolutely insane. It's absolutely crazy. Uh, The series is already off to a great start. Like I mentioned, we talked about The Phantom Menace uh, for our first episode, and everyone should check out that episode, as well as our second episode where we revisit Attack of the Clones. That will be dropping this Sunday at 9 a.m. Did I leave anything out, Scott? I think that covers it. No, yeah, no, we've been having a lot of fun doing these episodes and uh, hope you guys will will check them out if for no other reason to, than to hear Jay's, uh, you know, really interesting takes on Star Wars from with the pair of fresh eyes. Yeah, no, it, I is there, I didn't know there. I mean, I didn't know this, but it's like amazing that you can that I'm like best friends with one person who just hasn't seen a Star Wars movie. I know. Perfect for our podcast. Absolutely love it. Uh, all right. Where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarby Dent. Awesome. And you can find me at at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast. That's at at Media Plug Pods. And we'd love it if you followed us over there. We'd love it even more, however, if you checked out our podcast Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast. Uh, even at the $1 level, that really helps us out a lot. So go over there and check it out again. Again, at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Podbean, on Spotify now, and pretty much anywhere else uh, where where you listen to your podcast. And we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribed, shared, all that jazz. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week. Until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.